This is your house. These are your neighbor's houses. How many of these neighbors do you know by name? Go ahead, try to name them. If you're like most people these days, you probably only know a few of your neighbors by name. We have garages for our cars, privacy fences for our backyards, and we seem to be perpetually busy. You're doing pretty well if you wave or say hi as you're passing by. But what if we did more? What if we made it a point to learn the names of the people who live on our block? What if we took the time to listen to our neighbors and find out what makes them tick? What if our neighborhoods relied on each other in times of need, whether it be for a cup of flour or a shoulder to cry on? What if Jesus really meant that we should love our actual neighbors? Imagine the difference you could make in your neighborhood if you got to know your neighbors better. Imagine the difference you could make in your community if you partnered with others who had a desire to become better neighbors. Imagine the difference it could make in our cities if local churches were working together to make this a reality. You don't have to imagine very hard; it's happening. Check out the art of neighboring to discover how you can join others around the world to build genuine relationships right outside your door. All right. Good morning, everybody. You might look at me and say, "This isn't Jake or Jamie. Who's this new pastor?" I'm not really one of the pastors, one of the elders here, and many of you students will know me from Campus Renewal Ministries, the group at UT that organizes the Campus House of Prayer and Res Week, and everyone should know that we just finished like three days of 72 hours of prayer, so three days of nonstop prayer in a tent right in the middle of campus. Tons of the Hill Country folks were involved, along with all the other ministries at UT, where Campus Renewal actually helps facilitate getting all the 60 different churches and campus ministries working together. Um, so it's fun to be with you guys this morning. Jake and Jamie need a, like they need like a week off every now and then, right? So we're giving them a week off, and they like to hear, hear like another voice from the front, some from time to time. Okay, truth is that Auburn and A and M lost yesterday, <laughs> and I got a call like at midnight. They're like, "Dude, we can't make it." So, so who roughed who roughed it like I did at the UT game Saturday? Yeah, wasn't that awesome? It's super fun. Just get soaked. It's better than like one of those games where half your face gets burned. You know, it's like, I'd rather be in the, in the, in the elements like that. Um, I'm doing the last message on this whole Art of Neighboring series that we've been doing. And I want to give you guys, before I start, a little context for how this whole thing is sweeping across the city. Really, the whole movement started about 18, it's about an 18-month movement. It started last February. You probably don't even know this. This is like the private, private part of it. We're actually 1,200 pastors from around the city of Austin, the largest pastors gathering that I've ever heard of in our city, gathered, and these same messages that you've heard the last few weeks they were preached to us. They were preached to all the pastors. And they said, you know what, pastors, of all the neighboring people, honestly, pastors, you tend to be the worst. And so we're challenging you to get to know your eight neighbors. We want you to walk this out for seven months before you even talk about it. And so behind the scenes, what you don't know is that thousands or a thousand or hundreds of pastors have been practicing this. So when we present here to you guys uh, in September and October and 300 churches across our city, They've been living it. And now this is the the phase, these next few months, where we say, now we want you guys to live it. We want you to practice it. Leading up through this new year, then there's going to be like a huge public phase where in uh, January and February, much like Explore God, if you guys were around for Explore God, there's going to be enormous billboards and ads and radio and TV and print that all say, love where you live. And it's going to be the love where you live campaign. And neighbors are going to get excited about meeting neighbors while we've already been equipped and challenged to love our neighbors as Jesus would have us love them. 
And then after that, after Easter, there's going to be a four-week series of small group discussions where you can invite your neighbors into your home to look at what Jesus said about neighboring. Doesn't that sound awesome? I know for myself, being part of Campus Renewal, where our hearts to see the whole body of Christ work together, to see the city and the pastors from 300 churches all launch on this campaign together. It's really exciting. And so we're part of something pretty cool. The part that that is the most simple way to describe what the challenge is, what we really want to see God do with this, is we want to see you move your neighbors from being strangers, so you don't even know their name, to being acquaintances, you know their name, maybe something about them, to ultimately being friends. A friend is someone that you spend time with, someone that you know more than just the surface level stuff that's going on in their life. A friend is someone whom you would know where they're at spiritually and where you could maybe engage them with a gospel conversation. And so that's the simple thing we want us all to do during this series is move from stranger to acquaintance to friend. And so today I get that last piece to talk to you about a friend. What does it mean to make friends with our neighbors? And we're going to look at a passage where Jesus is called the friend of sinners. And before we do, I want to kind of uh, make a little concession, this idea of sinners. I want us to acknowledge first that we all sin. So this isn't like a separate category, like here's the sinners over here and, and the Christians aren't sinners. We're, we're all sinners. We all sin. This is actually used as a nickname for Jesus throughout the Gospels. And so you'll see in this passage, it wasn't even Jesus that used the word. They were asking Jesus, why do you spend time with, quote, sinners? And so I want to get that out of the way. So when you hear me use sinners, I'm using a lot of the words that they were using for what Jesus was doing and who he was spending time with. And I'll tell you real quick off the bat, it's real simple what the point is. The main point is that Jesus spent time with sinners. That's the main point. And then what we're going to ask is the question, why? Because this is the question the Pharisees asked him. Why do you do this? If you're a note taker, I'll go ahead and give you the three reasons. Then we'll look at them together. The three reasons are one, because they need me. Two, because it pleases God. And three, because it's what I was made to do. One, because they need me. Two, because it pleases God. Three, because it's what I was made to do. These are the things we'll look at together. Let me read the scripture and then we'll pray. This comes from Matthew 9. If you want to look in your Bibles, Matthew 9, verse 9 through 13. And Jesus went from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Let's pray again. Father, we just ask for the proclamation of your word to go into each of our hearts as you intend it. We know your word doesn't uh, return void. And with so many people here, you can speak to each of us through your spirit. And so we ask you and invite you to do so. Uh, use this time for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first reason, he says, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, it's the sick. The first reason Jesus gives is that they need me. He knew it. And this is the key word, need. He said, it's not them that the doctor, it's the sick that need the doctor. They need me. This is why Jesus would spend time with them. I love just the simple words in this phrase, in in the passage, if you read, it says that as Jesus was going from there, so Jesus is just going somewhere, and he sees Matthew. I love this idea of a person who normally would not be seen. If he would be seen, he'd be seen with disdain. He'd be ignored. He wouldn't be seen. Yet Jesus, as he's just going from one place to another, he sees him. And I love that phrase, as he was going from there. Jesus was going from somewhere. He was going to somewhere. He didn't go to Matthew specifically. He was headed somewhere, but he saw someone in the midst of heading somewhere else. 
And this makes me wonder about all the people that we might miss in our daily lives while we're going from there to somewhere else. And the challenge is for us to see our neighbors and to see the people that live around us. One of the reasons we don't, I think, is because we're too busy. It's probably our number one problem. We're too busy or we're too preoccupied. We're, we are kind of a going from here to their culture, right? You're going from this class to the next class. You're going from your house to your work. You're going from the house to the daycare. You're going from this to that to this to that. And we've got our, our book schedules filled and we know where we're going and where we're going. And as we do that, our minds can tend to miss out on the people and the opportunities around us because of what I would call just daily busyness. But not only that, if we're real honest, we have what I would call seasonal busyness. Have you ever found yourself thinking to yourself, well, once I get past this test, then, or once we finish this home remodel project, then, or, or once I get married, then, we've got all these seasonal things where we put ourselves in this loop where we say, well, I'm going to do these things eventually, but right now, if I can just get over this hump, then I'll have time to do these other things. But there's always humps. There's always a seasonal busyness that we, we tend to think, well, once I get past that, then I can see people. But Jesus saw people as they were going from here to there. Or maybe you fall prey to what many of us do, particularly I would say college students, what I would call ministry busyness. We're involved in so many Bible studies and activities that you're going from here to there is from this Bible study, that Bible study, that Bible study, this group, that group, this group. And as you're doing it, you, you've lost that there's 44,000 unbelieving students all around you. This is what I love about Jesus, that as he was going from one place to the next, he saw and he overcame that, that busyness. He would see someone in the midst of his busyness. But not only that, there's another problem. We don't necessarily believe that people are in spiritual need. I know this is a huge struggle for me. If I'm really honest, I think in my heart, sometimes some of my neighbors that I know, many of them very well, I can tend to write them off and think, well, they're, they don't really seem to have any need or physical need. I love that Jesus would walk by someone in Matthew who financially needs nothing. He's set. He's doing great financially. He could easily walk, walk by him and think, well, this guy's closed spiritually because look what he does for a living. He's so immoral. He's too far gone. Yet this is the person he would engage. And if I'm honest with myself, I walk through my neighbors and my friends and I can tend to, in my head, in my heart, think they don't really need Jesus. Listen to the way that Jesus described the way he looked at people in Matthew 9, the same chapter, but just a few verses later. It says that Jesus went through all the towns and villages teachings in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into the harvest field. When Jesus saw the masses, he, he saw them with different eyes than we, than we tend to, but we can cultivate the same eyes as Jesus that sees people's spiritual need, that looks out and says, these are helpless, harassed people. They're like sheep without a shepherd, and his heart, his compassion burned for them. And he actually said, the harvest is plentiful. I remember when I was at UT as a student, I read a book by Bill Bright, the former uh, founder of Campus Crusade. He wrote a book called Witnessing Without Fear, and I was, I was struck by one part of it. And Witnessing Without Fear... He said he always assumed that people were ready to respond to the gospel. Every person he met, he assumed that God sat him next to the airplane with that person. If he met someone at a party, God sent me to that person to that party. And he always assumed that God was already at work in that person's life, and that's why he met him. I remember being totally challenged by that, thinking, wow, that's crazy. Like, how much bolder would I be if I really believed that the harvest was plentiful? And even if people weren't responding, he said, you talk with as many people as you can. 
This might sound kind of crass, but um, evangelism is a lot like fundraising. <laughs> so I work in fundraising for 21 years. We have to raise all the funds for all of Campus Renewal Ministry, so I've been doing it for a long time. One of the things we train our, our new staff to do is to never assume a no for someone. So what happens when you're in fundraising, you'll often think of someone who might be a potential partner with you, and you think, Right away, you start to make excuses for them. Oh, no, they just got out of college, or, or oh, I know they're going through something difficult, or, oh, they just switched jobs. Or, and we always tell them, no, don't do that. Make them say no. Like, like in fundraising, that's the way you do it. Give everyone the opportunity with no pressure at all. But let them say no. Don't say no for them. The same is really true in evangelism. What if I was just to know one neighbor? Maybe they're spiritually open, maybe they're not. But what if I knew 20 neighbors? As I sow abundantly, I can begin to see where the harvest is plentiful, where, where there is openness to the gospel, but I'm not going to know unless I talk with as many people as I can and make them my friends. I wouldn't have known that my neighbor Laura and her daughter Nadia, I wouldn't have known about their spiritual interest until I went knocking on their door, very, very scared, but during Explore God a year and a half or two years ago, knocked on their door, invited everyone on my block to this Explore God thing, but she was real friendly. I explained what we were doing, invited her in, or she invited me in, and said, let me tell you my story. I said, great, this is awesome. She said, well, when I went to college, she grew up in Italy, so her her and her roommate went to the same college, and they both decided as freshmen, we're going to decide what we believe about God. She said, during the course of our four years, I became an atheist, and she became a nun. And I learned, (laughs) I, I learned a lot about Laura's history. But Laura, like a pretty, you know, normal uh, kind of secular progressive person says, but I never talked to my daughter about this stuff. I want her to figure out what she wants. So maybe you should talk to her. <laughs> and so then I sit down next to Nadia and I'm like, well, Nadia, what do you think? She says, well, I don't really know. I don't know if I believe in God. I said, you should come. And she came to two of our Explore God things at our house and, and had a wonderful time and expressed her disagreement with us on many things. Um, even a, a few weeks ago, I was walking a neighbor's dog and Nadia hopped off the bus and we walked back home together and she said, are you still doing that thing at your house? I really like that. I like being able to talk about things like that. And I like that you guys didn't judge me. And she said, I just don't get why you guys still believe in the afterlife though. I think when you're dead, you're dead. And I said, well, thanks for, thanks for being honest, Nadia. Like, keep, keep, keep coming back. But I would never have known it had I not sowed broadly. And this is what Jesus says in this passage. The harvest is plentiful. The problem is the workers. We need more of us to take steps of faith and to, to get to know our neighbors and simply be willing to try to go from stranger to acquaintance to friend. And when we do, some of those people are going to be spiritually hungry. Now, Jesus being God, he knew Matthew's heart. I'm sure he did. We don't have that privilege, but we can go to every single person that we walk by and say, hey, I see you. Come, follow me. Come to this group. Come to church. Come to my house. And we can invite people and see what God does with it. I was never so struck by the fact that God arranges things for us, that the harvest is plentiful than I was when I met my friend Brandon. Back in 1997, I was living at uh, Duval, about Duval and 45th Street. A neighbor and I were believers, and so we met once a week just to pray for our neighborhood. And we said, well, let's just divide up the houses in our blocks, and let's just go knock on doors and say something like this. We just would literally just go to the door and say, hey, my name's Justin. This is my friend Kelly. We both go to different churches, but we're, we're Christians. We live in the neighborhood, and... We pray once a week for the neighbors, and we thought, hey, we should just go ask if anyone has any prayer requests. We're not trying to get you to do anything, go anywhere, believe anything. Just wonder if you have any prayer requests. And we met just dozens of neighbors through this process, lots of great conversations, but nothing like when I knocked at the door of Brandon's house. Did my little spiel, how can we pray for you? He said, you can pray that I can find God. I said, whoa. I said, I'm, I'm happy to pray for that. I'm happy to talk about it right now, too, if you want. He said, man, I got a biology test tomorrow, but 
let's set it up next week. And so next week we met, and he tells me this crazy story that his brother had recently become a believer, had been sharing the gospel with him, that he, would, he refused to believe it. He was dating this girl. He had bought a ring, was about to propose to her that night when she called to break up with him. He went on, a, went on a drive around Austin, got back in the house and said, God, if you're real, you have to show yourself to me right now. I'm at the door. Next week, he put his faith in Christ. He's doing awesome. He lives in California. I got to visit him when he lived in Tennessee about two years ago. You know what he does? He goes door to door and asks for prayer requests for all of his neighbors. You don't know where people are at until you get to know them. And that's why Jesus was the friend of sinners, because he knew there were people out there that had need. I have to mention one thing. This would be like a sermon in and of itself, but that last part, what does he say to do? He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'd send workers out. The gateway drug to mission is prayer. We could do like a whole uh, another sermon on this, so I'll just leave you with that. The gateway drug to mission is prayer. Truly, if you guys will just simply set aside time to know your neighbors and start to pray for them, what happens is your heart changes. That compassion that Jesus had that you want to have too, that will happen as you start to pray. That's God's secret purpose in prayer is to change you, not to change stuff out there. But as he changes you, your eyes become more aware to what he's doing out there and everything changes. If you just talk to God about your friends, more than you talk to your friends about God, God would begin to work. Talk to God about your friends and soon you'll be the one talking to your friends about God. That's how he rigged it. Second reason. He said... But go and learn this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The second reason is because it pleases God. It pleases God. Go and learn this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus was quoting Hosea 6, 6, which said, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, the acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Throughout Israel's history, they constantly had to be reminded of this fact, that they would, they would get sideways in their religion where they would just care about the, the checking the boxes and doing the religious duties, that then in somewhere in the midst of it, they would lose touch with the way they treated people. And this would happen time and time again, and we need these reminders time and time again. As religious people, we can get caught up in the duties and miss the people. That's what Jesus is trying to say by quoting Hosea. Time and time again in the Old Testament. My favorite is actually Jeremiah 7. In Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah is instructed to go stand outside the temple and literally just scream at everybody as they're walking into worship. Your worship's false. Your heart's not right. You're just going through the motions. You don't care about people. <laughs> I've had like a little secret desire to actually teach Jeremiah 7. Sit like a church setting and then hire an actor to stand outside and just yell the same things at people when they come in? Would it be awesome? Just like, how did you respond to it? Well, here's our passage. Maybe it's true. Sorry, that's a side note. Um, but that's what can happen. And you remember when Jesus was at the temple, when he overturned the tables, you know who he quoted? Jeremiah 7. He said, you've made this into a den of robbers. He quotes Isaiah, my house should be called a house of prayer. Jesus knew that sometimes in our religion, we get it sideways And we forget people at the expense of our religious duties. We're doing it wrong. He says, you're doing it wrong, guys. This is why. It pleases God. See, the the, the Pharisees in their day, they tended to look at like only righteousness through the lens of their behavior. And so they always worked on, on checking the boxes and doing the duties, but they missed the people. You could say that they tried to really fulfill the first great commandment, but they neglected the second. I love the way that Jesus so bluntly puts it in Matthew 23 when he speaks to them. He says, Woe to you, you teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin. You neglect the important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out the gnat but swallow the camel. 
and you, you, you try to check all the boxes. You, you tithe on literally every little herb that you get. You, you, you try to check every single box, but you've missed the big picture. You've missed the people. This can tend to happen with us too, if we're honest, because we tend to focus a lot of times on the, the things we don't want to do. These are like the sins of commission. We say, these are the things we know we are not supposed to do. But we sometimes neglect a whole other half of God's counsel that says, There's the, here's the things you're supposed to do. We can do this sometimes in our accountability groups. We get together with our huddles, our accountability groups, and some, subtly they can just become, did you have your quiet time? How are you doing in your sexual purity? And, and you've got this list of what you, what you shouldn't be doing. But rarely do we actually say, well, how are you loving your neighbor? How much are you giving to the church? Where are you serving? There's a whole set of commands that are meant to be walking with God and loving God, but equally loving people. And sometimes we end up just doing it wrong. They were doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong if we don't love our neighbors. I notice this posture particularly, uh, that there tends to be this dichotomy, a false dichotomy of the way that we act towards sinners. We either think that we can condone their behavior or we're going to condemn their behavior. And we get caught thinking one of those two is the only thing that we can do. We can stand in judgment and say, I'm not going to do that and they're bad people. Or we think, well, if I befriend them, then I'm actually condoning what they do. And it's a false dichotomy. How many of you uh, UT students, when you, when you said that you were coming to UT, like a well-meaning youth pastor or parent said something like, I'll pray for you. Let me get that every time, right? You have, just, ah, don't get me started on that one. What they're doing is they're speaking this unbelief. And what happens is UT students will often come to UT, a very liberal university, and they think, I can't be friends with these people because I might become like them. And so I've got to separate myself and hide in this Christian bubble. How much greater if you could unite with your Christian friends and go join a group of unbelieving students and live on mission together and be God's salt and light to the area. You don't have to condemn. You don't have to condone. There's a third way. It's compassion. It's friendship. This is what's offered to us, that we can be friends with the world. This is the better way forward. This is the way that Jesus did it. This is why he was known as the friend of sinners, and so many people would gladly come to him. That Matthew would say, I'm not only going to come, I've invited my friends to come. Because you're safe. You don't condemn me. I know you don't condone what I do. That's why John, in the first chapter of John, would describe Jesus as full of grace and full of truth. He's this perfect mix of being full of grace and full of truth. And he can reside in that place of compassion. You know, it used to be that, that kind of the typical evangelism flow, so to speak, would be you want to teach someone to believe. Like, you've got to believe the right thing. Put your faith in Christ. Now I'm going to give you this list of rules of how to start acting like a Christian. And now you can belong to the body. Believe, behave, belong. I believe what's better is for us to provide a place of belonging. And when we do that, people see the way we live. Slowly, they're going to want to behave like we behave. And that will lead to their belief. Make this place of belonging. This is what this friendship idea is, that we would not get it wrong. We wouldn't do it wrong in our faith, but we'd make friends with the world and provide a place of belonging. I know in our neighborhood, Brenda and I have tried a number of things. Um, it's hard in a neighborhood where, where, you know, as was described, people tend to just pull in and kind of check each other out. But we've made a lot of intentional efforts. Some of the things that we've done, just to give you guys some ideas that have been helpful, uh, we started like a date night a number of years ago, probably 10 years ago, started just getting all the couples in the neighborhood. And once a, once a month or so, we would just go out on a date, go out to a little restaurant, or sometimes we'd have people at our house. And I remember that that started to just kind of make this cross-pollinization, and other people started knowing each other. I actually remember when we saw one party, one group of people bringing food over to the other neighbor's house, and our first thought was, hey, why aren't we invited? <laughs> and we were like, no, this is, we, we did it. Like, now we've created this community, and things are happening, so this is awesome. 
We started doing progressive dinners where we'd actually get into each other's houses and go from house to house to house to house, and people loved it. Uh, for about 10 years now, we've done this, uh, this annual Christmas party where literally 30 to 40 of our neighbors will come to our house. We're providing a place of belonging. It's easy for me because I know that I'm a Christian the second they ask what I do for a living. But they know that it's kind of weird. They're in this Christian house. There's a few Christian symbols, but uh, yet I'm, I'm loved and I belong, and, and it causes questions. It allows me to, to get together with uh, Angus and Gunther, our, our, our gay friends and neighbors, and, and have them over and, and get to know them and their story. And, and just a few months ago, uh, about a year ago actually, find out that, that Angus has Parkinson's. And he told me right when he was getting off the bus, and I got to sit there and just lay my hands on him and pray for him while he started to cry. Because we've provided this place of belonging, we can move people closer to Jesus. But it starts with friendship. It pleases God when we do this. And finally, Jesus said, it's my purpose. It's what I was made to do. For I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Jesus makes a pretty clear purpose statement. This is why I've come. I've come for people like this. This is my purpose. Very rarely, actually, it's kind of wild. In the New Testament, you don't see a lot of like direct purpose statements that Jesus gives where he says stuff like, as direct as this, this is why I've come, to call the sinners. Maybe in Mark 10, 45, he says, I've, I've not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And a real similar story in Luke 19, where he is uh, actually with another uh, tax collector uh, named Zacchaeus. You guys know the Zacchaeus story? At the very end of the passage, he says, I've come to seek and save the lost. This is my purpose. This is why I'm here. And it's not only just his purpose, it's the purpose that he gave to his first followers. Think about when he called Peter and John, his first words, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. His last words to Peter and John and many others, go make disciples of all people. It's not Jesus' purpose, it's the purpose that he's given to all of us. In fact, I love it if you were in Matthew 9, flip to Matthew 10, what happens? Jesus calls Matthew to be a disciple and he calls him to go share the gospel out in the towns. Everything starts with that. It's Jesus' purpose, and it's the purpose that he's given to us. He's given us this purpose to know our neighbors. You ever kind of wonder why we're here? Um, there's a really great passage in Second Peter chapter 3 where the, the believers at the time were starting to doubt, like, why hasn't Jesus come back? Why hasn't he come back? Is he really coming back? And, and Peter writes to affirm them and just say, trust me, he's coming back. The reason he's not come back is because the God is slow in anger. He's wanting everyone to come to repentance. And then he goes on to say, his patience means salvation. The reason Jesus hasn't come back is because there's more people to be saved. And we get to be a part of that purpose. I know personally it's kind of weird for me, but my testimony was when I came to faith in, in Jesus when I was 14 at a, at a Campus Crusade high school camp. Um, it, it sounds cheesy, but the speaker, I'd been searching for purpose and meaning. I think that's why this was so, so impactful for me. The speaker just said, draw a line from right here on this stage and all the way to the sun. And say that's infinity, which of course it's not infinity, but say it's eternity. He said, your life on earth is a speck of sand in the timeline of infinity. But in that speck of sand, you can affect the rest of eternity. You have purpose. This is why we started this whole series. And, and you know, breaking our first Peter, we, we ended in first Peter 2, where, where Peter would say, you guys are a chosen people, a holy priesthood. You belong to God so that you can declare his praises. Live such godly lives among the unbelievers that they may see your good deeds and praise God. This is our purpose. It's not just Jesus' purpose. It's a purpose that he's given to us. But here's something about purpose. Purpose determines our priorities, right? And priorities determine our time. 
Purpose determines our priorities. Priorities are measured by our time. If you want me to examine your life and tell you what your priorities are, all I need to do is look at, I can't really look at this, but what you think about, where you spend your money, and where you spend your time. I'll have a pretty good idea what your priorities are. And so if we're to say this is our purpose, to make it a priority, the question is then we have to make time for it. Jesus was going from here to there, yet he still said, hey, let's go to Matthew's house and let's hang out there this time. We have to make time to make friends with people. And so this is the challenge as we try to move from stranger to acquaintance to friend is where are you going to make time? Where are you going to make time to reach out and make friends with your neighbors, with your classmates, with your coworkers? This is the challenge that I put before us. Jesus was called the friend of sinners. I love this actually. He describes it a little bit more how it actually was a nickname for him. In Matthew 11, just a few chapters later, it's actually in context of people questioning him and Jesus questioning their ability to understand the times. So he says, you'll see in a minute, he says, when John came, you said, oh, he was fasting and didn't eat anything, so he was weird. We don't need to believe him. And now I come and I'm partying and hanging out with people and you say, I'm weird, don't believe in me. But I just want you to understand his nickname here. Matthew 11, for John came neither eating or drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom's proved right by our deeds. What if we started to share that nickname? That people really began to see that we were friends of sinners, that we were friends of neighbors. And they could look to us and, and point and say, that, that's how I would describe that person. That's how I describe that family. That's what we want to do with this challenge in the coming months to to befriend people. And let's hear stories and report and share all that God does as we're doing this all around the city. What would it look like if the entire city had neighbors, neighborhoods with believers practicing these things, stepping out to make friends with neighbors? We're trying to do that and where we live on campus and where we live in our circle of accountability in central Austin and wherever God has us. God's going to use us. Let me give you a couple just practical things that I think might help. Just quick an application. One is don't be too busy or preoccupied to see neighbors. Again, I've already presented that praying for people will be, go a long way for helping you with that. Two, don't believe that neighbors are not spiritually hungry. So broadly, you never know what God's going to do. Meet everybody. Someone is ready to respond. Third, don't think that all God cares about is your outward holiness. Don't be doing it wrong. Remember that your holiness is also measured in how you treat your neighbors. Fifth, make it your purpose to befriend people who are not yet following Jesus. And similarly, but real specifically, make time for people who are not yet following Jesus. Real specifically, we challenge all of you to share a meal with someone. Share a meal with someone. Have someone over to your house. Take someone down to the dorm. Take someone down to the cafeteria, whatever your sitting or situation is. Challenge you to have a meal with someone who's far from Jesus. A couple real quick pointers from, from my experience. One is to be the first person to have the neighbor over to your house. Be the first one to initiate. Always be the first one. New person moves in, be the first person to meet them. Start early. Be the first neighbor to introduce yourself. And, and this is true too. Start late. <laughs> An apology and invite can be one of the best icebreakers. I'm serious. Like if you haven't done it, one of the best things you can do is go, this sounds really stupid, but I felt like I should have met you a long time ago. And my name's Justin. And that's all you have to do. It's great. And they'll appreciate it. And they'll, they'll feel the same way. Why, why, why didn't you come meet me? <laughs> it's halfway, right? Just be the first to introduce yourself, whether it's at the start or later. Uh, so next thing, use special occasions such as a birthday, holidays, sporting events. 
just think about all the special occasions of things that are happening and think, this is something I was planning on doing. Let me just invite some other people to do it with me. Next idea is to invite more, more than one person at a time. Sometimes people might be intimidated to go just by themselves. But if you kind of indicate that there's a group, like we've got a, a group of friends that are coming over to do something, coming over for dinner, sometimes that makes it um, more um, appealing. And finally, and I mean this one seriously, accept almost every invitation. Brenda and I really try to practice this. We can't do it 100%, but, but we, we'd really try. Accept every invitation. If some neighbor has invited you over to their house or for you to go do something, you really have to think about dropping the other stuff that you've done. Because they've offered a friendship toward you, and you've got to take it. This is what I love about this passage. It's pretty funny, though, actually. Jesus is like, come follow me. Where are we going? Your house. All right. (laughs) So invite yourself over. (laughs) So Jesus does this with Peter. He does it with Levi. It's hilarious. So just invite yourself over. But accept every invitation. When someone has offered you that invitation, if you accept it, that's one of the best things that you can do. And if you say no one or two many times, they're not going to invite you anymore. So really consider rearranging your day to accept every invitation. I'm going to pray for us in a moment. We're going to get ready for communion. And as we do, I want to read one more scripture to remind us of Jesus' friendship toward us. This was actually on the night that Jesus was betrayed in John 15, the very night where he knew he was going to be betrayed. He tells his disciples, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. He's calling them right there. He says, you guys are my friends. I'm about to lay down my life for you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. But instead, I've called you friends. For everything I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. As we reflect and take communion, I want you to think of Jesus' last words and remember that you were the friend that he sought. That wherever you were at in your life, while Jesus was going from one place to there, he saw you. And he said, I want to be your friend. I want to hang out at your house. And that's the beginning of what transformed your life. So I want to remember Jesus' friendship as we take communion, his invitation. That no greater love has anyone this, that he lays down his life for his friends. The band's going to play, and as they uh, play kind of instrumentally, we'll invite you guys to come forward or to go to the back, receive your communion, uh, take it in your own time, and then we're going to sing and worship together in response. Let me pray. Father, in this moment, we thank you that you've made us friends. You've called us friends, and you laid down your life for us because you called us friends. Let that reality just sink to our hearts. And make us better friends of our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.